Well, uh, we're going to be taking a break the next two week, two weeks from our series in Acts to talk about the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of human life. And I want to start by reading, I want to start by reading something that I find to be one of the most disturbing and troubling things ever written about the church. And this troubling statement was written by the abolitionist known as Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave. And he penned these words about his experience of the local church. He wrote, It is a beautiful expression of the horrific hypocrisy of some antebellum churches. I hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have man-stealers for ministers, woman whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and mild Jesus. The slave auctioner's bell and the church bell chime in with each other. And the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of the pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting the semblance of of paradise. Now, I like to think that if we were alive during this period in history, that we would have been on the side of God's word as it relates to slavery. I like to think that. I, I like to think that we would be on the right side of God's story in history. I like to think that. But then I think about guys like Jonathan Edwards. See, if you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, Jonathan Edwards is, hands down, the greatest theologian in the history of the American church. Edwards was brilliant. His books and his sermons are full of truth, and they proclaim the glory of Jesus. Edwards was used in one of the greatest revivals in the history of, of America. Literally, literally, tens of thousands of people met Jesus under the preaching and teaching of Jonathan Edwards. And yet, Jonathan Edwards had a huge gap in his sanctification. He had a huge gap in his understanding of Scripture in that, though he was a preacher of the gospel, he was also a slave owner. How can you lift up the name of Jesus? 
How can you love and worship Jesus? How can you write such beautiful theological truth as Edwards wrote and think that it's okay to own human beings? I think we can hear the story of Edwards and we can read the words of Frederick Douglass and we can do one of two things. We can become arrogant and puffed up and we can look back and say, well, if I was there, I certainly would have been, I would have been on the right side of this. Or we can recognize that if somebody as gifted and full of the Holy Spirit as Jonathan Edwards could be so dead wrong and sinful in his view of slavery, then isn't it possible that maybe, just maybe, there's some cultural tides right now that you and I are caught up in that in 200 years, our ancestors in the church are gonna look back on with horror. Like, isn't that possible? Can we, can we not have the humility to acknowledge that in the scope of history, in two, 300 years, there are gonna be people that love Jesus that will be baffled by the blind spots and inconsistencies in the American church? And I would say the answer to that is absolutely, absolutely. And yet there are two things, there are two issues, there are two topics that don't have to be blind spots for us anymore. The two topics that we're going to discuss over the next two weeks are the topics of abortion and the topic of immigration and the treatment of refugees. As I say that, I feel the weight and tension in the room. Uh, I've had multiple friends that have texted me and called me and emailed me in the last two weeks to say, why would you talk about politics on a Sunday morning? To which I've said again and again, abortion and the treatment of immigrants and refugees literally has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do. It has everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with the love of God for people. So today as we discuss abortion, I want to say up front, this is not going to be a sermon that's going to end in shame for the many women in our church that have had abortions. If that is you, you're you're not going to be highlighted in some shaming way. In fact, my hope for you is that you would experience today great healing and renewing in the grace of God. We love you and we want you to be here. In addition, I would say one of the strengths of our church is that our church has people from all different political persuasions. I think that that is actually healthy and beautiful and good. We want to be a church where all kinds of different perspectives and views are welcomed into Christian community. That's a good thing. In addition, this is not going to be a sermon where we can talk about all of the complexities relating to abortion. Uh, For instance, The debate is often derailed by the conversation on what about abortion in the the cases of rape and abortion where the life of the mother is threatened. And I would just say, like, we don't have time to flesh out all of the ethical complexities of abortion today. And so today we're going to focus on the 98% of abortions that aren't related to rape or the life of the mother being endangered. We're going to talk about what the scripture has to say about human life. We're going to talk about what Jesus has to say to both women in crisis, considering abortions. And we're going to talk about how the church can work for the thriving of society. So with that in mind, whenever society, whenever in particular the people of God, 
buy into the lie that there are some people that are more valuable and some people that are less valuable, evil always ensues. Let me give you some horrific moments in history. 12.5 million Africans were stolen and taken to the new world. How did people justify that act of heinous injustice? And the answer is quite simple. They simply called the Africans possessions. Possessions. That justified rape and torture and murder. Six million Jews and millions of other quote-unquote undesirables were killed by the Nazis while many German Christians were silent. How was that atrocity perpetrated? Well, those people were simply called less pure, less pure. Millions, literally millions. It's very difficult to even arrive at a realistic number because it affected so many different people. Millions of Native Americans were murdered due to violence, displacement, and disease. How could a group of people that claim to be Christian perpetrate genocide against the Native people of North America? Quite simple, we, we just call them savages. 800,000 Tutsis were slaughtered in Rwanda. How was that genocide justified? Well, the Hutus simply called the Tutsis cockroaches. See, in all of these instances, what's happened is a group of people with power have decided to dehumanize another group of people. A group of people that had influence and resources and money, a group of people that were at the top, justified the mistreatment, the murder, and the genocide of other groups of people by de-sanctifying life. Now, as drastic as all those moments are and as much mourning and repentance as they all call for, we are now approaching 60 million babies that have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. 60 million. And it's hard to even talk about that scope. That number doesn't even seem real. That's a number that just sort of flies over our heads. But we've killed 60 million babies in our nation. How can we justify that? Well, we've done what all of the people with power have done throughout history. We've dehumanized them. We've called them tissue or we've called them zygotes or we've cocked about them as if fetus is not also a baby. And in that dehumanization, we've justified atrocities. And evil has ensued. So what do we do to really value human life? Like, how do we arrive at a position that's informed by scripture, that fights for the human thriving and flourishing of culture? How do we stand up and turn the tide when injustice and evil is in the world? And the answer to that is complex, but also simple. It comes down to love. It comes down to love. The only thing that can push back the darkness in culture is the love of God in Christ. And what we see in scripture is that every human being has value, dignity, and worth because God, God, the creator, God, the immortal, God, the beginning and end has placed his love on humanity. He's placed his love on humanity. So what I want to start with today is his love. 
I want to talk about the love of God. I want to talk about the love of God that extends to the unborn, that extends to the mom that's been in crisis considering an abortion. I want to talk about the love of God that's even extended to men that have been either complacent in abortions, passive that that have led to abortions or actually bullied women into abortions. I want to talk about the love of God that has the power to change everything. So today as we begin, let me just say, we see the love of God in three radical ways in scripture. The love of God comes to people in three radical ways. It comes to God, it comes from God, first of all, in creation. In creation, we see the value and dignity of human beings. We see the sanctity of human life in the way that God creates mankind. Let me read this to you. This is Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's what we have in this text. God in his great love for humanity does something unique with mankind that he doesn't do with the animal kingdom. God creates man and woman as the pinnacle of creation. As the pinnacle of creation. Now, if you think of creation as a symphony, the whole thing is glorious. The creation of the universe and the sun, the moon, the stars, the creation of organic biological life on earth, it's all breathtaking, it's all wonderful, but in the midst of that creation symphony, the climax is not the Himalayan mountains, it's not the Pacific, it's not sunsets, it's not redwoods. The climax of this story of creation is the the beginning of human life. It's that men and women are created by God and then God does something amazing that he doesn't do for any other created thing. God stamps man and woman with his image. He creates them as his fingerprints that reflect his beauty and his glory and his value. And man and woman as image bearers, think about this, man and woman as image bearers reflect his image, not just in the fact that they're biological or spiritual, but in the totality of who they are. They point to the majesty and splendor of God in ways that no other created thing does, including the angels. And then... Mankind is given something really amazing. Mankind is given authority over creation to rule creation as under rulers or under shepherds or regents of God himself. They're called to exercise authority in creation for the thriving of all things. Now, this means a couple of things that are profound. This means that every human life has literal infinite value and dignity because they reflect the image of God. It means that human life and the value of human life is not rooted in capacity, capability, or contribution. It's rooted in the very nature of being humans that image God. 
This means that the most profoundly disabled child, this means that the person whose IQ doesn't rise to the level of even being able to get into high school, this means that even people who will never walk around under their own power, this means that all human beings are worth more than all the created world put together. That baby, that baby, in the womb, before that baby thinks, before that baby reasons, before that baby has the um, ability to act on all of its innate capacity, that baby in the womb is more valuable than all the grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone area. Now, as a conservationist, as an outdoorsman, like I'm all for conservation. I, I want our great grandkids to experience wild places and wild things. And I think Christians should care deeply about the environment. I think that we should, we should work for human thriving and flourishing by working for the natural order to be protected. But hear me, nothing that God's ever created comes close to what he does with humanity. He puts such value and dignity on us. And right now in this moment, I want you to let this sink in. Right now in this moment, in the developed world, 90%, 90% of people who are diagnosed in the womb with Down syndrome are aborted before they're born. 90%. We've declared an entire people group is unfit for life. 90%. In places like Iceland, it rises to 100%. There are no people with Down syndrome in Iceland, not because it's been cured, but because they've been exterminated. What scripture teaches is that in creation itself, God does something that we need to pay very careful attention to. He, in his love, puts value and dignity on human beings that we should apply to all humans, no matter their status, their age, their capacity, or their ability to create wealth. Human beings matter because God created human beings distinct and different. Now, if that's where it stopped, that would be enough, but that's not where it stops. God also puts love on humanity, not just in creation, but in conception, in conception. Um, Procreation, procreation is a demonstration of God's love. Here's what I mean. Conception isn't less than a biological event. It's not less than a biological event. It's so much more than just a biological event. This is all over scripture. Let me give you a couple examples. This is the 139th Psalm, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, God speaking to Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, this doesn't mean that scripture is denying the beauty of biology. 
In fact, God is the inventor of the biological process of conception and growth. But here's what scripture says. It's not just cold science happening in the moment of conception or in the growth of that prenatal baby. What's also happening in the womb is a miracle of life in which God is intricately and actively involved in the creation of that person. It's not mom and dad who get to claim to be creators. It's God himself. He's the one that made them and formed them. Their days were numbered by him. He's the one that forms personality and talents and strengths and weaknesses. He's the artist working in that DNA to actually create a human being. And that means that he places love on us in creation. God is the one that creates, that forms, that knows. So listen to me. I think for many of us, even those that claim to be Christians, when it comes to the birth of a baby, we're way more like deists than we are Christians. See, the God of the deist is the God that just creates the universe and he throws it out into space and he says, good luck. I hope that all of the systems and laws of nature that I've created sustain you and I hope things work out, but I'm not gonna be involved with it. The God of the Bible is not the God of the deist. He's the God that's actually working in the realm of science to demonstrate his glory. He's involved in the biological process of conception. It's not just cold science. It's the active hand of God in the womb, knitting and forming and creating. It's God at work. I would say, I would say like, this is so beautiful and encouraging for everyone in the room. God is the one that created you. Can you let that sink in for a second? Billions of people on planet earth and God knew you and formed you. He's the one that knit you together. He's the one that had ordained your place in history, in time, in space. He's the one that gave you your ethnicity, your talents. He's the one that gave you the particular personality that you have. Your fingerprints that are unique to you are the work of God. And that means that you have value and dignity and worth. And it means that we should have love and concern for the unborn because God is at work in the process of conception and in gestation And in delivery, God is at work to bring human life, which is more glorious than the cosmos. He's bringing human life into being. Thirdly, God places value on humanity in creation, in procreation or conception. And finally, this is where the value that God places on humanity rises to the point of scandal. He places value on us in redemption in redemption. Let, let me read something to you that you've probably heard. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What was it that led to this great act of redemption and rescue in which Jesus was born to die in our place? What was it that drove this act? It was the love of God. 
And what happens in this act of redemption is that humanity is elevated even beyond the state of created value and dignity. What happens in Jesus's acts 2,000 years ago is that humanity is lifted in the incarnation, cross, and resurrection. Can you think for just a second about what God is saying to humanity about his love for people in his willingness to actually take on flesh and become one of us. For Jesus, for Jesus to leave the glory of heaven and to actually humble himself, to become fully human, to be formed in the womb of his mother Mary physically and biologically, what's happening in that moment is all humanity is being elevated even again to a greater state of dignity. Look at what God did to reach and rescue and save us. On the cross of Jesus, all of our sins were placed on him. He that knew no sin became sin. He that was perfect, innocent, right, just, was judged as unjust, sinful, evil, wicked, untrue. He was crushed, he was torn, he was marred. He bore the penalty for our sin. In that act of redemption, God is saying, I wanna lift you, I wanna lift you out of sin and death, getting the last word that my grace would get the last word. And in the resurrection of Jesus, humanity is lifted yet again because all of you that have placed your faith in Jesus, all of you will not die Though your body will die indeed, you will not die. You will be glorified. You will be without sin. You will receive a body that will never get sick, that will never get tired. You will live in a new heavens and in a new earth forever, reflecting the radiance of God. Now, here's what we see throughout scripture. God is just unbelievably scandalous. There's there's prodigality or extravagance in the love that God places on people. He loves people. This means that we as followers of Jesus, as those that love him, this means that we, if we're to be followers of Jesus, need to be consistent in our application of the sanctity of life and we need to be lavish lavish in our love, respect, care, and concern for all human life. We need to be men and women. We need to be men and women that fight and pray and work for the love of God to be known, experienced, and seen in Jesus and for all people, for all people to be protected and guarded as image bearers of God. See, let me, let me say something. Human dignity is not something that you confer on someone when you decide that they're equal. Human dignity just is. You can recognize it or not recognize it. You can't reduce it. This leads us, this leads us from the love of God as followers of Jesus into what the scripture calls love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. Because God's loved humanity in creation, in conception, in redemption, we are called as followers of Jesus to love our neighbor. This is Matthew 22, starting in verse 36. Jesus is questioned by a lawyer who asked, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. Um, The greatest commandment is that because God first loved you, your life should be marked and formed by a response to his love and to his holiness in worship. You're called to love God in response to who he is, but it doesn't end there because love for God can never just be, it can never just be a vertical exchange in which God's grace creates worship and love. Love for God also must create a horizontal exchange. Jesus says, this is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law in the prophets. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to sum up every command of God into two things, you can do it. You can do it. You're to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. You're to recognize that he's the source of life, the source of grace. He is the most valuable because he created all the things that you've put so much value on. And in response to the cross and resurrection, to the grace of God, you're to live a life of ever increasing worship and love for God. And that love for God never ends there. That love for God then creates a culture of life in which followers of Jesus love their neighbors. Now, people are always trying to trip Jesus up in the New Testament by asking, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus's response to that question again and again is way more lavish than we are with our love. So let me ask the question today, as it relates to the sanctity of life, who is your neighbor today? Let me give you a few answers that I think are very biblical. First of all, your neighbor is the unborn. Your neighbor is the unborn. A king's mother gave him this advice in Proverbs 31, 8, 9. She said, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all those who are destitute. Next week, as we talk about immigrants and refugees, we're not talking about a political party. We're talking about being biblical Christians, biblical Christians. But it doesn't stop there. She also says, open your mouth, judge rightly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Can I, can I just ask you a question? Who are the most vulnerable people in society? Who are the most poor people in society? Who are the neediest people in society? Who are the most voiceless people in society? It's people who have yet to be born. Those in the womb, those in the womb are people in our culture that we have said do not even have rights or liberties. We as Christians are called to love our neighbor and that includes children in the womb. Children in the womb. Here's what's fascinating. Throughout scripture, if there, is, if there is a weighted direction that our love should flow, it's towards those that are disenfranchised, voiceless, and marginalized. I just want to say, like, we want to be the kind of church where we love babies. If you're a mom or a dad and you bring your baby into the service and the baby's making noise, can I just tell you, that does not make me mad. Children are a gift from God that should be celebrated, that should be honored, that should be treasured. And that doesn't begin at birth. That begins at conception. We should speak up for those that don't have a voice. Loving our neighbor includes the unborn. Loving our neighbor also includes 
loving women with unwanted pregnancies. See, here's what's fascinating. In this conversation, what tends to happen is between pro-life and pro-choice, we divide up and we throw rocks at each other. And what gets left out are the women that are actually experiencing crisis pregnancies. What gets left out is the concern and care for women, none of whom dreamed of having an abortion when they were little girls. And to love our neighbor well demands that we extend the love of Jesus to women that are in circumstances and situations that are painful and overwhelming. I think when you really look at the data and you really talk to women that have had abortions, what you're going to find is that abortion is about a lot of things. Choice isn't one of them. Women that have had abortions are locked in circumstances and situations that feel exceedingly overwhelming and hopeless. Medical science monitor surveyed post-abortion ladies, and here's what they found. Over half said they needed more time to make the decision. Less than 30% received counseling 64% of the ladies that they surveyed felt pressured by others to have abortion. Over half thought it was morally wrong. And as they went further to explore the results after the abortion, what they found was that less than 1% said that their relationship with their partner improved. Less than 1% felt better about themselves. Only 0.3% felt more in control of their lives. 77.9% felt guilt. 59.5% said that part of them died. 62.2% said that they were unable to forgive themselves. Can I just stop here and say like, what you're seeing in those stats is that abortion, abortion, is something is something that seems to many women as the only way out of a desperate situation or a bad relationship in which they feel trapped and the medicine is is more bitter than the cause that they're trying to cure so can i just say like if we're going to be a culture of life that extends to the baby but that also extends to ladies in difficult situations. Back when there used to be a lot of pro-life feminists, I wish there were more today, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote these words, there must be a remedy even for such a crying evil as abortion. But where shall it be found, at least where begun, if not in the complete enfranchisement and elevation of women. (laughs) To be a culture of life means that we have to love our neighbors. And these are women in difficult circumstances and difficult situations. We actually need to be in relationship with them, fighting for them, advocating for them and working for their thriving and their good. This also includes loving your neighbors who have had abortions, ladies that have had abortions. We want to be a culture here where because of the gospel of Jesus, that invites all people who are sinful to receive freedom from sin and freedom from shame, we want to invite ladies that have undergone abortions to receive healing and care and community and safety in the context of our church. 
If you're here and you've had an abortion, like far from being shamed here or shunned here, you're invited to come and sit at the table and receive health and wholeness progressively in a relationship with Jesus. And anybody, anybody that belittles you or treats you with contempt, if you tell me about it, I will deal with that personally. We want you to be here. We want this to be a place of healing and wholeness and health for you. Why? Because you're my neighbor. You're my neighbor and Jesus died on a cross for my sin and Jesus died on a cross for your sin and in repentance and turning to Jesus, we have the hope of shame being removed. In addition, and I'll just say, I wrestle here. I want to be in alignment with the gospel of Jesus, but I wrestle here but we also want to love our neighbors who are men who have been actively or complacently involved in abortions. Like we want to be the culture that calls men that have been involved in abortions to repentance and faith in Jesus and to growth in their sanctification. And we want to be a culture that recognizes that sexual promiscuity among men is directly related to the 1.2 or 1.3 million abortions in America a year. And the tragedy is that's just as much in the church as outside of the church. If you're a man, we want to remind you, we want to remind you that if you're a Christian, Jesus is not just king over your mind and your heart. Jesus is king over your genitals. No, I'm being very serious. Don't be a Gnostic that thinks that God just cares about the spiritual. If you're a Christian... Jesus is Lord and King over your reproductive organs, whether you're male or female. The question is not, what are your rights and what are your liberties? The question is, do you belong to the King or do you not? If you belong to the King, he has the right to demand fidelity to him with your sexual activity and your choices. We want to love our neighbors. We want to be a culture of life. So what do we do with this as we close What do we do with this? Well, I think if we really see the love of God towards people in creation, conception, and redemption, and if we really see Jesus's command that the love of God should lead us to love for neighbor applied evenly and even-handedly by the grace of God, I think what this should lead to is active involvement in working for human flourishing. What should the church be about? Well, the church should be about human flourishing, which includes evangelism because there is no flourishing without salvation. And it includes working for the good of all those that are not even Christians. Jeremiah 29, 7 is God's word to exiles living in the city of Babylon. It applies to Christians today. It says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As followers of Jesus, we want to be people that work for the good of our city, for the thriving and flourishing of human beings, and we want to do so in all the ways that that we're called to, which includes relational ways. Part of the way that we work for thriving and flourishing is having friendships with people so when the crisis comes, they have a support system. We want to work for the thriving and flourishing of the unborn. We want to work for the thriving and the flourishing of those 
that have had abortions. So let, let me tell you some practical things that we do and need to do better. First of all, we, we need to be a community of repentance. This is not an issue that can be addressed without the people of God repenting deeply and often. Repentance is described as a change of mind in the New Testament. Now, that's not all that it is, but that's a good picture of what it is. It's that you're heading in one direction, you're thinking one way that's not in alignment with reality, and God's grace sobers you and awakens you that you might turn towards reality in Jesus. The first thing we need is repentance. It's repentance. Uh, we need to be a culture of repentance. Whether you consider yourself liberal or you consider yourself conservative, if you're a Christian, you need ongoing and continual repentance because you are a sinner. And if we're not a culture of repentance, we won't be a culture of reconciliation and we won't be a culture of restoration. I call you to repentance today. I call myself to repentance today. This is where it starts. But it doesn't end with repentance. We also need to be a church that applies the gospel and recovery and care to women that have had abortions. We want to be a culture of counseling and care in our community. We want to come alongside people that are dealing with the after effects and the devastation that abortion has left in its wake. We want to be a culture of care and community for women that are in difficult situations. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but about about three-fourths of all American abortions happen in the lives of women that are below the poverty line. About three-fourths. It's like, man, I'm barely making it. Most abortions happen statistically to women that already have a child or two. I'm barely making it. I'm struggling to put food on the table. I'm underemployed or poorly employed or unemployed. And now I find out that I've got another mouth that I'm going to have to feed and I don't know how I'm going to do it and keep my other kids alive. If we're going to care about abortion, listen to me, we have to care about economics. We have to be a culture of generosity. We need more employers that are working for single moms, thriving and good as a church. We need to advocate We need to advocate for things like paid maternity and paternity leave as Christians. Uh, Sounds like you're getting political. Well, Christians are called to be citizens. And to be a citizen means that you should be informed by scripture in the way that you advocate for those that don't know how to advocate for themselves. We should think deeply about the prosecution of deadbeat dads. We should think deeply about care for single moms and having a culture where single moms are protected and valued. Working for thriving and flourishing and being a culture of life demands that we care deeply about adoption and foster care. It means that both relationally and politically, And economically, the people of Jesus need to come into the gap that's left in our culture due to sin and bring light and life and hope. Today at the end of our service, in all of our congregations, we've got different partners that we work with um, that have tables set up. Because we don't want to just talk about being a culture of life and the sanctity of human life and then say good luck. Um, We we actually want to give you handles. 
We've got partners like Anna's House that we work with, which is a phenomenal, a phenomenal organization that works to provide um, foster care resources and adoption resources. There are many, 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 many people in our church that are in the middle of the pain of infertility. There's so many people that that are desperate for babies and we want to come alongside them and we want to come alongside people that don't know how on earth they can care for a baby and we want to help connect those dots. Right? Our partner, the 111 Project, is represented here downtown today. Um, that's a partnership that we work with, again, to, to engage the needs of the foster system and the need for adoptive parents. We also have Crossroads Medical Clinic, um, which I think is doing some of the best work in the entire metro to care for disadvantaged ladies or ladies that are having crisis pregnancies. Like, to be a Christian and be pro-life means that we've got to figure out, whether you're conservative or you're liberal, we've got to figure out prenatal care for moms, and we've got to figure out a way that they can get access to medicine and medical professionals that love Jesus. Crossroads Clinic does a fantastic job in counseling women that are pregnant with unwanted pregnancies, in helping with medical care and with ongoing follow-up. We have different ministries represented south and in Shawnee and in Edmond. The point is this, like, if you're a Christian, this needs to shape how you pray. It needs to shape what you love and believe, and it needs to shape what you do. It needs to shape what you do. And to, to my friends, and, and there's many of you, um, I'm personally, I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I'm in a weird little world all by myself. But to my friends that are Democrats and Christians, I would just appeal to you, man. Be a pro-life Democrat. <laughs> Advocate for women. To my friends that are feminists, be a pro-life feminist. Empower ladies, like really empower ladies to have choices, to have choices with employment and thriving and flourishing. If you're, if you're conservative, if you're, if you're Republican, like I would appeal to you to not just, to not just end with legislation, but to think about Relationship. And options. See, here's what's crazy. And this is going to come up a lot in the next two weeks. What's crazy is Jesus is far too liberal for conservatives. And Jesus is far too conservative for liberals. And on every issue, Jesus is going to say something that's just radically different. That's radically different than culture. And he's going to call you to engage in ways that glorify the God of grace. So as we wrap this up, I want to pray for you. And I want us to pray together. I want us to pray for our nation. I want us to pray for ladies in our metro. I want us to walk out of here loving babies more, loving single moms more, loving people that have gone through the trauma of abortion more. And I want us to walk out of here with hope because we're the people of light and salt and that requires hope and hope is rooted and grounded in God, not us.